Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm editor-at-large at SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Mr. Geekman in the TV series Pound Puppies, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? <laughs> oh, man, I'm trying to go back to Mr. Geekman. Uh, not a clue. I do recall that Pam Adlon was one of the lead pound puppies because we're talking this is a cartoon right david that is correct it is an animated series it is an animated series which in the old days we called cartoons and so this would have been david when i was introduced to pam adlon little did i know when i was being mr geekman that we would become so intimate and californication a few years later that wouldn't be the only thing that would, you'd introduce to Pam Adlon, if you know what I'm saying. Boom! Boom! Oh, my – oh, by the way, David. Yes, sir. Uh, I just heard, and I hope this isn't a spoiler, that uh, I have been asked to reappear on Californication next season. You're the gift that keeps on giving that show. I tell you. <laughs> In any case, uh, uh, yes. so – it's been a while since we've produced the last episode of the Tobolowski Files. Lord a lot, a lot has happened. A lot has happened since then. Um, you've been going on tour. I've been settling into my new job in Seattle. I've really been loving the film scene here. Uh, a lot of stuff has happened. Like, uh, for example, you came to Seattle to appear for a, a Groundhog Day uh, oh. sort of Q and A at the that was Uptown fantastic. Yeah, great, oh, that was great. Day. Great time. So we fun. sold out the theater. Uh, Five hundred people came. Thanks to everyone at the SIF Uptown for facilitating that, um, and and sort of various adventures like that around the country that you've had. You were at San Francisco Sketch Fest. I heard great reviews about that. Um, so before we begin today, just want to make a couple of announcements. First of all, uh, we are back doing the podcast, and uh, there, Stephen already has five episodes written. It's just a matter of getting them recorded and uh, getting them out to you guys again. So uh, things have settled down a little bit. You'll hopefully hear more episodes coming in the Tobolowski Files feed in the near future. Uh, and the other thing I want to mention is for maximum enjoyment of this episode of the Tobolowski Files, we'd strongly encourage you to listen to episodes 55, 56, and 57. That's 55, uh, The True Arena, 56, What Does the First Day of a Dream Look Like, and 57, the long-distance relationship. So check those out. They're available on the feed. In the meantime, Stephen, I've, you've been doing so much stuff. You've been touring around the country. Um, you have been appearing in shows such as Californication and Justified. And I believe you've also been acting uh, in, in a Shakespeare production. Is that correct? Oh, gosh. I, if, only, <laughs> if only that were true, David. Oh, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. Uh, I always kind of had a rule that I always tell actors in my classes, no matter how much TV or film you should, you, you're doing, you should always do at least one play a year so you kind of keep your sea legs. And of all things, I violated my own rule. And I have, except for the one-man shows and, and the shows with you of doing the Tobolowski Files, I haven't really been doing theater. But, and this is a large but, I'm not going to say a joke based on that introduction. But uh, I was invited by a director from the Royal Shakespeare Company who who came to Los Angeles to take part in a reading of Hamlet at the Mark Taper Forum with the great John Cho from uh, Harold and Kumar fame. He was playing Horatio in Hamlet. I was playing Polonius. 
And it got, gave me a chance to realize how great theater is, how great Shakespeare is. And it opened my eyes to an idea. And I'd like to share the idea, David. If you were to take a random survey of 100 people and you were to ask them, what do you think is the greatest play ever written? And then you were to subtract those that answered, what is a play? I would wager you would still have a sizable percentage that would say Hamlet. Why not? I mean, it's got it all. It's got great characters, great speeches, great problems. Okay, it's not so big on great solutions, but you know you can't have everything. Now, if you were to ask that same group of people that love Hamlet, how does the play end? I would guess a large percentage would say, and I hope this isn't a spoiler, Hamlet gets killed. Right? I mean, that's true. He does. But that's not how the play ends. The play ends with the story about to be told. Horatio's. With his dying breath, Hamlet charges Horatio to tell the people what really happened. He says, If thou didst ever hold me in thy heart, absent thee from felicity a while, and in this harsh world draw thy breath in pain to tell my story. Fortinbras and his soldiers arrive. They clear the playing area of corpses and escort Horatio and the body of Hamlet off stage to explain what happened to the curious public. The play does not end with the death of the noblest of minds, Hamlet, but with the hope that the people will believe Horatio's story. Do the people believe it? It's never stated in the play. Then during curtain call, it dawns on us as we applaud, we are the people. Another generation of theater goers heard Horatio's story and believe it, and applaud his efforts to speak from beyond the grave. The difference between tragedy and hope is often nothing more than when you choose to close the curtain. Events continue. It's the arbitrary nature of our ability to organize that makes us optimists or pessimists. Beth and I went to New York City in 1982 with the wake of Jamie Foster. We were certain it would be successful. We played to sold-out houses and standing ovations at the Hartford Stage Company. Time magazine reviewed our production in Hartford and called it the play of the decade. Come on! Beth and I took an eight-month lease on an apartment at the Alcott Hotel in Manhattan, 72nd and Columbus. We opened a bank account. We changed our mailing address. We said goodbye to all of our friends in L.A., knowing we would never hear from them again, except for maybe a congratulatory telegram or two after the Tony Awards. That didn't happen. The show was sliced and diced by the New York Times. At the party on opening night, instead of sipping champagne from a golden slipper, we ended up sitting outside on a curb in the rain, in our prom clothes. We were devastated. Gilbert Parker, Beth's agent, sat beside her with his arm around her shoulder, trying to quiet her sobs. I stood behind them thinking, how in the hell are we going to get out of an eight-month lease? I had a wave of nausea wash over me as the nuts and bolts of a hard landing were falling all around us. In a movie, the scene may have ended where there was a crane shot pulling away into the New York night with thunder in the background. But we had to continue. We wandered home to our apartment at the Alcott Hotel to sleep, 
to sleep perchance to dream. These are the type of nights you wished you had a time machine just to jump forward for a few hours to the morning. It was a thick, flavorless soup of no sleep with occasional lumps of crying. It was seasoned generously with bursts of anger toward Frank Rich, the critic for the New York Times. None of it mattered. It was over. We were going to close after a minimum number of performances required by the Writers Guild for Beth to retain the rights to her play. That would be about three weeks' time. Then we would head home with our tail between our legs. Beth lay on the bed in a coma of misery. I told her I would close the new bank account, you know, the one that had no money in it. I would reroute our mail back to Los Angeles. I would talk to the hotel manager about the lease. There's always a lot of unexpected legwork that comes with humiliation. I have noticed that through some fault in cosmic design, human beings have a hard time visualizing what the beginning of a dream looks like. We could be standing at the trailhead of our future and think we're hopelessly lost. The crisis of confidence that hits everyone above the age of 12 isn't a product of acne, but of an uncertain sense of navigation the inability to see how we get from here to there. There's a similar myopia in imagining what the world looks like the day after everything comes crashing to the ground, the day after your dreams fall apart. I can tell you from experience, it looks quite beautiful. The day after the night of our opening, the rainstorm passed. New York presented us with a beautiful October morning. The sun was warm. There was a gentle breeze at my back as I walked to the little European bakery called the Eclair for pastries and coffee. There's almost nothing more life-affirming than a double espresso. I walked back to the hotel with a love for all mankind, even Frank Rich. I decided now was the moment to talk to the manager about the lease. With an enthusiasm that could only be attributed to high levels of caffeine, I asked the girl at the front desk if I could speak to the person in charge. She smiled and disappeared into the nondescript stainless steel doorway cut into the wall behind her. I waited. I looked around the Alcott's little lobby. I felt sentimental, then disturbed. I never noticed the smell of mothballs before. The faded floral patterns on the furniture looked particularly shabby. Yeah, it would be good to get out of here. The manager came out and greeted me politely. He had a professional smile. The shape, but not the substance, of friendship. There was something odd about him. I couldn't figure out if he was a young man with an old face or an old man with young hair. He asked me if he could help. I told him that we had a problem with the lease. His smile vanished. I asked him if he had read the New York Times this morning. He blinked once, which I took for a yes. Then I said it should come as no surprise that we're not staying for the eight months as planned. He said it didn't matter whether the show was successful. We had signed a lease. We were bound to pay him for eight months whether we stayed or not. I told him I understood his point. That's the way things should work in theory. Unfortunately, because of the failure of the play, we didn't have any money. The absence of money has an amazing effect on theories. I apologize that we had to be the bad guys. What we were doing was wrong and irresponsible, but in this case, unavoidable. I promised as a gesture of goodwill we wouldn't stay at his hotel ever again. We bet everything on ourselves and lost. 
I would pay for the remaining month we were in town and an extra month for his trouble. I told him this was the best we could do. I thanked him for his time and went upstairs before I started crying. Beth was lying on the bed like a dead seal on the Arctic ice. I told her I'd just talked to the manager. She asked me if we got out of the lease. I said, probably not, but I don't think he'll sue. Deep down, I suspected he knew it was his fault for doing business with theater people. I looked at the clock. Eh, it was already lunchtime. <laughs> Time flies when you've had a double espresso. Then it dawned on me I had a matinee in an hour. Being an actor is just like having a lease agreement. You are bound to perform under any and all conditions. I kissed Beth goodbye, and I ran out the door. I had to navigate the 19 blocks from the hotel to the theater. There was plenty of time as long as I wasn't robbed or slowed up by a dog walker with a pack of Yorkies. Once more, I was embraced by the sheer beauty of the day. There was such hope in the air. I was inspired by the breeze. I decided I would relish these last performances as if I was never going to be in this play again, which was a wise choice because I wasn't. I walked briskly between the baby strollers. I focused my mind on getting past my current miseries and into performance mode. I felt the actor creeping back into my soul just as I stepped off the curb and heard a ripping sound. I stopped in the middle of the street. I looked around to see what caused the noise. I saw nothing. Then I felt the autumn air circulating around my buttocks. I felt behind me. The seat of my pants had split, and it wasn't a little split. The entire seam had given up the fight, and my blue boxer shorts were waving surrender in the breeze. I put my hand over my bottom, much to the delight of New Yorkers on their way to brunch. I rushed into the nearest clothing store. It was Charavari's. I explained to the salesman I needed a pair of pants, fast. I was late for the theater. I had a matinee. He asked what show I was in. I told him. He raised his eyebrows and said he had read the review this morning. I shrugged apologetically and said, What can you do? The show must go on. The salesman seemed sympathetic. Frank Rich is always mean when he hates something, but this time he really seemed to let you have it. Yeah, I said. Lucky us. He took me back to a rack of pants. I gave him my size. He said right now all he had was a simple pair of black slacks. I grabbed them and headed for the dressing room. I told him not to worry about wrapping them up. I would wear them out of the store. He handed me the bill. $425. Side note. This was in 1982. Adjusted for inflation, these pants cost about $200,000, give or take. Okay, that's an exaggeration. Put in concrete terms, if I were a Warner Brothers cartoon and handed the bill for these pants, I would have turned into a giant exclamation point before my head popped off of my body. I asked him if I had the right ticket. He said yes. He said they were Italian gabardines, very fine material. I told him I was a failure. I didn't have any money to pay for them. He laughed and said, that's why they make credit cards. The salesman leaned in and got philosophical. Take my word for it. When you fail is when you need to celebrate. Good times bring their own champagne. The pants are beautiful. Enjoy them. I took a deep breath and signed the bill. He smiled sweetly and said, I'll be sure to come to the show before it closes. Come soon, I said. There are times in your life when you feel like you're rolling snake eyes every time you step up to the table. 
This is when the natural gambler's instinct has to take over and you say, I'm going to cross the street anyway. That's when you learn survival is usually just a matter of being stubborn. I made it to the theater on time. I headed for my dressing room. En route, I ran into Patricia Richardson, who played my sister. Pat looked surprised and said, you showed up. Well, of course I showed up, Pat. Did you think I wouldn't? Pat laughed sadly. No, it's just you're always here early. For a moment, I thought you and Beth might have opted for a double suicide. Then I figured you were just hungover. No, no, I was too miserable to get drunk. Pat sighed. Me too. Well, whatever, you just broke your understudy's heart. Stephen, how do I look? Well, you always look beautiful, Pat. Always. Seriously. How do I look? I was crying all night. Am I puffy? Okay, you're a little puffy, but just like you had a reaction to shellfish, not like you were punched in the face. Pat shrugged. Now that's good enough for a matinee. Oh, I hate this business. Me too, I said. Pat stopped, took a step back and looked at me. Are those new pants? Yeah. Well, they're beautiful. Yeah, it's Italian gabardine. Well, the drape is perfect. I know, Pat. It's nice material. When did you get them? Well, I got them this morning. Well, actually, just a few minutes ago at Charavari's. Charavari's? Pat shook her head. That's the most expensive store on the west side. That is so brave to splurge like that when everything in your life has fallen apart. Wow, I wish I could do that. Well, someone just told me that when you fail is when you need to celebrate. Pat nodded. That is so true. We should celebrate today. Pat, I think I already have. I can't afford to celebrate anymore. Pat said, no, no, no. I mean, let's celebrate on stage. This play is so beautiful. If we're miserable, it means those bastards win. You're right, Pat. We're actors on Broadway. How bad can it be? Pat looked at me cross-eyed. I backtracked. You're right. You're right. It could be bad. It could be very, very bad. But we still have a job, at least for a few more performances, and I don't want the bastards to win. Pat made her funny, serious face. See you out there. We'll have a good show if it kills us. Yes, ma'am. I saluted her and left. The stage manager called five minutes. I ran to my dressing room and put on my costume. I came out to check my props and have a peek at the audience. I could see several dozen theater-goers passing the time reading the Frank Rich Review. The espresso had worn off. The sense of well-being was gone. The stage manager announced places. I ran into Susan Kingsley, our lead. Susan always looked sad, even when she was happy. She hugged me and whispered, Are you all right, sweetie? I whispered back, Yeah. Is Beth all right? Probably not, I said. Susan moved to her entrance and said, Then today's show is for Beth. We'll do it for her. Susan winked at me and got into place. The curtain rose to scattered applause. I ran back and got ready for my entrance. In the end, we had a good show. For Beth, for my new pants, for another day on Broadway, and for never, never letting the bastards win.
every breath you breathe. One of the things that's so magical about Hamlet is that every time we see the play or read it, we continue to hope that this time he's going to find a way out. It's unexplainable. Even Hamlet knows there's no way out. He tells us in Act One in his very first monologue, this is not nor cannot come to good. But still we hope. It's the genius of Shakespeare. Or maybe it's the genius of man, hoping for a better ending than we expect or deserve, observed and captured by the genius of Shakespeare. When a dream comes crashing down, it's easy to follow its momentum into the earth, never to rise again. But like a good audience to our own tragedy, it's hard not to hope that this time Hamlet finds a way out. One of the things we never consider is that there are millions of other people's dreams rising around us all the time of which we are unaware. Even if we failed as the central character of our own story, we may succeed as a supporting actor in someone else's. I know this is true. My entire career has been based on this premise. Monday morning, after the disastrous opening weekend, my New York agent called. He opened the conversation with an energetic, So, when are you headed back to L.A.? I was startled by his lack of verbal lubricant. I figured he wanted to make sure I was leaving to clear the decks for his working clients. I said, We haven't made our plane reservations yet, but soon. He chuckled and said, well, what I mean to say was, are you up for doing some auditions or do you just want to get the hell out of Dodge? I was pleasantly surprised by the positive turn in the conversation. Auditions are always good, I said. He said, well, you know, I got a little something here. It's a commercial. Uh, You do commercials, don't you? Well, sure, I said. Why not? He said, well, some actors won't do them. They think it hurts their reputation. I said, did you read the Times review? He laughed. Yes, unfortunately I did. I said, so you know I have no reputation. Commercials are good. Well, this one is as good as commercials get. It's for Federal Express. You you know, they're always funny. Yeah, yeah, they have the fast-talking guy. Yeah, Federal Express is great. Well, good. Come by my office today. I have the copy. The audition is tomorrow afternoon before the show. I hung up the phone and felt like I had a new lease on life. I was shocked about how little it took to lift my spirits. In this case, I was encouraged by nothing more than another chance to fail. I picked up the copy. I had to play a businessman who had to make a big presentation. I hire a company other than Federal Express to deliver my slides for the show. The package never comes, and I end up having to do hand shadows in front of a screen for my presentation. The audition was downtown around 22nd Street. I decided to walk from the hotel on 72nd. I thought I would go over the audition in my head on the way down. The weather was turning. The sky was gray. Winter was on the way. As I headed downtown, I passed Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall. I had fantasized that in our long and successful run, I'd be seeing concerts and operas on my days off. Not to be. I passed our theater on 51st Street. No one was going in to buy tickets. I passed the restaurant where our cast and director, Ulu Grossbard, had our first celebratory meal before we started rehearsals. 
I passed the bar where I drank a toast of good fortune with my former college roommate Jim McClure and my soon-to-be understudy Greg Grove. I headed through Midtown. I passed all the open doorways of danger and sleaze that made New York famous. I passed Sardi's Restaurant, where I imagined our cast would have our portraits drawn and hung on the wall after the Tony Awards. I was being crushed by the weight of my own vanity. I arrived at the Federal Express audition unprepared and suicidal. The director greeted me warmly, asked how I was. I lied and said I was fine. He asked if I wanted to run through the commercial with him on tape. I shrugged and said, sure. He described the action. He said I was desperate. My package hadn't arrived. I'm calling the crappy delivery company to find out what's going on. He cued me from my first line. I looked at the camera and said, Where's my package? I need that package. The director told me that the man on the other end of the line was completely uninvolved, uncaring. Maybe he was eating a sandwich. He pointed at me for my next line. I said, I need that package for a very important presentation tomorrow morning. It's very important. And I began to cry in the office. The director stopped and asked me if I was all right. I, I, I said I was fine. Our play just opened on Broadway and we were massacred by the times. But it wasn't just the show. It was the years of writing and planning and hopes just down the drain in one night. At least I got out of our lease. The director asked, you had a lease? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I signed an eight-month lease at the Alcott. We were sure the play would be a hit. Wow. But you got out of it, I think. Maybe. I'm not sure but he'd be a fool to sue us. The director nodded sympathetically. He asked me if I wanted to try it one more time. I said, sure. He said, when the slides don't arrive, I end up having to do hand shadows on the slide screen. He asked me if I knew how to do any of those. I said, I thought I could do a German shepherd and a butterfly. I learned them one morning when I was hungover watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. The director stared at me for a moment and then said, well, good. Let's give it a try. I ran through the commercial again. I held back the tears and did various hand shadows. He smiled and said thanks. I headed back to the Alcott. The wind kicked up, making my new black gabardine pants flap in the breeze like the flag on a pirate ship. That afternoon, my agent called me. He was laughing. You got it. I got what? The Federal Express commercial. You got it. Don't make any plans to leave the city. You're recording in New York sometime in the next couple of weeks. Great, I said. And you want to know what the best part is, my agent said? Sure. The director said you were so depressed, you were perfect for the part. He said you can't fake that kind of misery. You brought the whole room down. Well, that's nice to know, I said. My agent kept laughing. Keep being miserable. If it works, it works. That night after the show, Beth and I celebrated my getting the commercial. We went to one of our favorite spots. It was a noisy, upscale Irish pub. Good food, good beer, and most importantly, good whiskey. I toasted Beth with Irish whiskey, a tradition I developed with my friend Bob Darnell, actor, ex-Marine, and the wisest man I've ever known. Bob said Irish whiskey was made from the tears of the angels and was always fitting for any toast in which you want the Almighty to take part. Beth and I were enjoying dinner and a few more toasts 
when a man made his way toward me through the noisy golden light of the pub. His face was remarkably familiar, but I couldn't place him at first. Then I realized it was because he was on the wrong coast. It was someone I knew from doing free theater in Los Angeles. I was shocked to see him here in New York. He kissed Beth and patted me on the back and asked if he could speak with me privately for a second. I excused myself and walked down the corridor to the men's room with him. He said he was furious about the review. He saw the play in previews and thought it was great. I thanked him. He said he had a friend at the bar who wanted to talk to me. We turned, and a man wearing a gray sports coat, smoking a cigarette, toasted me with his glass of scotch. I waved. My friend hugged me and said, Keep up the good work, man. We love you. And I watched him vanish into the night. I walked over to the bar and sat on a stool. I ordered another Irish. The man shook my hand and said, I heard about your problems. Maybe I can help. Uh, my problems? I wasn't trying to be dense. There were just so many to choose from, I needed more specificity. For a moment, I thought he was from the Actors Credit Union and wanted to help me with the hotel bill. The man smiled faintly and said, Your problems with the play. This Frank Rich character blasted you out of the water. I thought maybe you would want to fire back. The man handed me an envelope. There was nothing inside. On the back was a list of dollar amounts written in pencil. I studied the list but couldn't make out the meaning. The fellow translated. These are all the things we could do to Frank. He pointed to the first entry. Fifty dollars. For fifty dollars, we could scare him. His finger moved down the list. For two hundred, we could break an arm. For four hundred, we could break a leg, the bottom bone of the leg only. For eight hundred, we break the top bone of the leg. That hurts a lot more and takes him out of action for a lot longer. You're kidding, I said. The man was silent. I assumed that meant he wasn't kidding. You really do these things? Well, not me personally, but I can hook you up. I contemplated the list for a moment. This scaring thing is interesting. Seems like you get the most bang for your buck. Does it involve masks? Well, it could, the man said. Usually they stop him in some secluded place and show him a weapon. They tell him they know where he lives, where he works. That sort of thing? Wow. How much does it cost to kill someone? $10,000. You're kidding! Again, the man was silent. That's so cheap! I mean, I just bought a pair of pants for 425 The man stared at me. So, can I be of service to you? Oh, God, no, I said. Truthfully, the ideal time for any of this would have been before the review came out. Well... Here's my card if you change your mind. I said, no, 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 keep your card. This is all interesting, but my girlfriend and I are leaving New York soon. We have enough bad memories of this last week without having Frank Rich's blood on my head. I mean, the guy is a critic. That's punishment enough. I went back to the table. Beth asked me what was going on. I told her I was just introduced to a hitman who wanted to know if we wanted to kill Frank Rich. Beth stirred her iced tea quietly and said, What's the point? The review is already out. I know, I said. That's what I told him. But they did have a bargain where they scare him for $50. Beth thought about it for a second. Hmm, it's interesting. But what if they scare him too good and he has a heart attack? Would they charge you more? Ooh, I didn't think of that, I said. Beth took a sip of her tea and murmured, It's a mean world, sweetie. 
very mean, I said. We ate in silence for a moment or two. Then Beth said, did you keep the list of prices? No. Oh, too bad, she said. Why? I may want to use it as a joke in a new play. Well, I smiled. I'll remember it for you. I took another sip of Irish, and in its warmth I considered that the tears of the angels are occasionally happy ones. What are the guiding forces in our lives? Love, money, chance, prayer? You can make a long list, but if I were a betting man, I would wager the one thing no one would think to put on his or her list is equilibrium. Just like a migrating bird seems to have a magnetic awareness of north and south, we have a very highly tuned sense of when things are out of balance and we seek to correct it. Science has always had a very special relationship with equilibrium. The ancient Greeks saw it everywhere. They were concerned with why things changed. From Archimedes to Aristotle, there were theories about displacement and balance. Why does water turn into ice? Why does love turn into hate? Was it for the same reasons? Sir Isaac Newton saw the universe as a smoothly functioning machine. The engine of this machine was equilibrium. Matter and energy tended to equalize. Newton said this is what makes the universe predictable with one catch. We're never aware of all the forces that are seeking equalization. According to Newton, the only reason the thing we call chance exists at all is our own lack of information. Maybe that's why it's hard to find bookstores in Las Vegas. All of this is further complicated by the fact that equilibrium is not a single thing. Physicists explain that there are two basic types, static and dynamic. Static equilibrium is weight on a scale. One element moves a second element. You step on a static equilibrium device in your bathroom, you see how much you've displaced the universe, and then you curse yourself for eating the whole bag of cookies. Dynamic equilibrium is much harder to recognize. It's a form of equalization where one thing is removed while another thing is added in the same proportion. The outer shape of something appears the same, but the inner elements have been changed. My mother was a master of this. It almost never snowed in Texas. When it did, it was even more rare when it stuck. And once, every two or three years, the most miraculous of all events occurred, a snow day when we missed school. There was almost no way to convey the joy these days brought into our lives. It was better than homemade cinnamon rolls. We never had proper snow clothes. Mom improvised. Our first layer was saran wrap. Then came flannel pajamas, over which we pulled blue jeans, cotton shirts, sweaters, scarves, coats, hats, gloves, and finally, and unfortunately, tennis shoes. Tennis shoes are useless in the snow. Our feet began to freeze within five minutes. The first signs of hypothermia set in after an hour. Paul, Barbie, and I would play until we were numb and unable to form syllables. When we started hallucinating, we stumbled back home. Mom would put all three of us in a tub, fully clothed, 
Then she would open the drain and turn on the hot water so it would dribble in at the same rate the cold water dribbled out. Over the next 30 minutes, we were gradually restored to room temperature without the water level changing. Dynamic equilibrium. Equilibrium is like ants at a picnic. Once you see it, once you start to recognize it, it's everywhere. The universal desire to fill a vacuum or a perceived vacuum is the foundation for advertising, politics, and the vitamin industry. It's the basis of every theory of economics from simple barter to currency exchange for products. It is the motivation for gamblers to place one more bet because their luck just has to change. On a more noble level, the principle of equilibrium creates charity, giving to those we feel are in need. In hindsight, I could see the forces of equilibrium during the wake of Jamie Foster at every turn. Gilbert Parker, Beth's agent, said the play fell victim to the sophomore curse. Translation, the New York Times usually doesn't give a good review to an author's second play after they declared the first a hit. They seek balance. During our first previews, Joan Potter My former acting teacher from SMU made her way backstage to congratulate Beth, Pat, and Belita Marino, all fellow students, on their work. She managed to find time to stick her head in my dressing room, smiling and saying brightly, You're still no good. Balance. Before Joan's soul annihilation pill had a chance to dissolve in my system, I ran into Patty Lapone on Columbus Avenue. She hugged me and told me how wonderful the show was and welcomed me to Broadway. It was a real-world example of dynamic equilibrium. I never even felt the water get warm. It just was. Even the would-be hitman in the Irish pub is a product of equilibrium. Empty theaters on Broadway created the need for plays, which was filled by Beth, which created the job category of theater critic, like Frank Rich, which created an even newer job category, the critic murderer. Equilibrium is the unsettling principle in my relationship with actress Susan Kingsley. I became very close to Susan during the run of our play on Broadway. She was our leading lady. But that's not the beginning of the story. I met Susan a few years earlier at the Actors Theater of Louisville. She played Meg in Beth's first production of Crimes of the Heart. Beth was on top of the world when she won Louisville's Great American Play Contest with Crimes. She left Los Angeles to begin rehearsals. She had only been gone a couple of days when she called me at midnight. She was upset. She said rehearsals weren't going well. Her director, John Jory, was not working with her. He was trying to strong-arm her over casting and other artistic decisions. I asked Beth who was in the play. She said her Lenny was an SMU graduate named Kathy Bates. I told her, well, you don't have anything to worry there. John Jory cast the greatest actress I had ever seen. Beth paused and said, I'm not sure of that. The woman playing Meg is pretty good, too. I don't know. She's got something. I said if there's someone else in your play that's remotely as good as Kathy Bates, you don't have to worry about anything but I'll come out as soon as I can. If nothing else, I could go on beer runs and keep John Jory at bay. After a day of travel and a bucket of fried chicken to counteract jet lag, I headed over to the theater. The actors were on a break. The first time I laid eyes on Susan Kingsley, 
She was smoking a cigarette outside the rehearsal hall. She was tall and thin. She looked and talked like a hillbilly, more specifically a hillbilly that had just been beaten up in the county jail. She hardly looked like how I envisioned Meg in the play. Meg was supposed to be a sort of cosmopolitan sister. She was supposed to be a little glamorous. She was a party girl nightclub singer who had left a string of broken hearts behind her. Susan looked like she belonged at a monster truck rally. John Jory greeted me with a certain measure of restrained hostility that I chalked up to an aggressive form of Southern hospitality. He invited me to sit in on rehearsal. I saw Kathy looking over her script. She blew me a little kiss to say hello, and I ran over to give her a quick hug. John Jory cracked the whip and said it was time to start. He glowered at me. I slunk away and sat down. They began to work on part of Act One with scripts in hand. Kathy walked into the taped-out area of the kitchen in the living room. Kathy Bates is like a nuclear reactor. Power and then some, and then some more. She dominated the rehearsal room. Then Susan entered. And heaven help me. What happened? I couldn't see or hear anyone else. Through some trick of her genius, she became the most beautiful woman I had ever seen in my life. I melted. Her eyes told stories beyond stories of the life she'd lived. She was not only Meg, she became the only Meg I could ever imagine again. When Susan and Kathy had scenes together, it was frightening. It was holy to watch acting so compelling and so truthful. It made the real world seem pale and artificial by comparison. I left the rehearsal shaken to my core. Beth asked me what I thought. I said, with those two women on stage, you could cast the rest of the play with barnyard animals and it would work. You have nothing to worry about. And Beth didn't. The play was a stunning success. There was interest in producing Crimes of the Heart in New York, but not with Kathy Bates or Susan Kingsley. The producer said they weren't attractive enough. The differences between New York and Hollywood have been highly exaggerated. It doesn't matter what coast you're on. In show business, superficial is always flavor of the month. Two years later, when The Wake of Jamie Foster got the green light for Broadway, Susan was Beth's choice for the lead. Director Ulu Grosbart agreed. I auditioned and was fortunate enough to get cast. We were going to try the play out at the Hartford Stage Company in Connecticut before bringing it into New York. This would give Beth a chance to work on any rewrites. I have rarely been starstruck, but I was nervous over the prospects of being on stage with Susan. As we began rehearsals, all of the fear vanished. When you were on stage with her, all you had to do was look into her eyes, and you couldn't lie. She was a walking contradiction. On stage, she was elegant, even luminous. Off stage, give her a chaw of tobacco and she could pass for someone selling Christmas trees off the back of a pickup truck. On stage, she was raw and emotionally naked. Off stage, she was achingly shy and covered. She was thoroughly ordinary. On breaks, she would crack out the smokes and talk about her kids and show me snapshots of them and her husband. It's my second marriage, she'd say out of the side of her mouth, and this one's gonna work. If it doesn't, I tell you what, I may marry again, but I sure as hell am not getting divorced. I did that once. Once was enough for this lifetime. Almost killed me. One night in Hartford after rehearsal, Beth and I had come home from dinner when the phone rang. It was Susan. 
She asked if I could come over. She wanted me to spend the night with her. I didn't even think. I said yes. I hung up the phone and told Beth Susan wanted me to spend the night. Beth gritted her teeth. I said, it's innocent, I'm sure. Beth gritted her teeth again and said, it's Susan. She wouldn't ask if she didn't mean it. Go, but be careful. I went. Susan greeted me at the door. She thanked me. We went back to the bedroom. I wish I could say it was all perfectly innocent. I'm not sure that it was. It was in no way sexual, but it was completely uncovered. We lay on our bed in the dark, fully clothed. Susan curled up in my arms. She began crying. She said she was so lonely for her family. She just needed to be held. I complied. She said she didn't know what to do. She couldn't live without acting. She couldn't live without her kids. She didn't have many choices to act if she stayed out on her farm in Kentucky, and her family couldn't just pack up and follow her whenever and wherever she got a job. She couldn't see any way her life could work out. I had no help for her. I could see she was right. She was a tragic victim of conflicting passions. We often say, what is life without passion? Passion never comes with an owner's manual. There are no operating instructions. It's an engine without a highway. The only comfort I could offer was the standard option to kick the can down the road. I said, maybe time could bring some clarity. I told her she didn't have to take on the weight of deciding what she would do for the rest of her life right now. All she had to do was this one show. She can make other decisions later as circumstances changed. Susan sighed and settled into sleep. She fell asleep on my shoulder. I stayed for a couple hours, then I covered her up and left. As it often happens, we didn't have the luxury of later. We didn't have a long and successful run where her kids could join her in New York. With the Frank Rich Review, our fate was sealed. So, what would Susan do? The question was heightened when Marcia Norman asked her to stay in New York to star in her new Broadway-bound play, Night Mother. Susan declined. She decided to go back to Kentucky. I was surprised. I said, Susan, you could walk away from all of this? Susan shrugged and told me, kids are only kids once. There'll always be another play. I couldn't imagine making that decision, but I didn't have children then. We never know what heaven and hell looks like through someone else's eyes. The forces of equilibrium that sent Susan back to her farm in Kentucky led Marcia Norman to fill the vacuum and pick Kathy Bates to star in Night Mother. It was the role that led to Kathy being cast in Misery. It was the role that made Kathy an international star. When the way closed, we had a goodbye party. There were no tears. We were done with that phase of mourning. Susan invited Beth and me to come out to the farm to visit. We could drink some beers and watch the stars. Susan told me we would sit out in the barn. She would roll us a couple of cigars and we'd talk about our days on Broadway. We had a toast with Irish, the only drink appropriate when the Almighty is involved. We promised we would visit her in Kentucky. In modern times, Physicists have moved past Newton. New theories have emerged that once you open a system to the environment, it becomes unpredictable, 
equilibrium is replaced with the creation of new behaviors. My first week back in Los Angeles, I got an audition for a science fiction movie called The Philadelphia Experiment. When I sat down to read, one of the producers looked surprised and said, What are you doing here? Well, I never know what to do when confronted with the obvious. I just shook my head and said, I want to be in your movie. The producer sat back in his chair and smiled and said to the others, I just saw him in the new hit play on Broadway, The Wake of Jamie Foster. I saw it a couple weeks ago. Oh, I said, you you saw it during previews. Right, he said, previews. Man, that show was so funny. Not just funny, really touching. You were so good. But that woman who played the lead, uh, Susan Kingsley, I said. Yeah, man, she was brilliant. And she does that every night? Yeah, yes, sir, every night. Must tear her to pieces, he said. Yeah, I guess it does. So what are you going to do if we want you in our movie? Will you stay with the play? My head spun around the maypole of what is a permissible lie for about a nanosecond. And then without a ripple of conscience, I said, Truthfully, now, I would not stay with the play. All I want to do is be a part of this movie. The producer was touched. I got the job. Thank God he never read the reviews. If the play had been successful, I would have been in New York, and I never would have gotten the movie. The next two months, I worked on the Philadelphia Experiment. Beth continued to write, We never visited Susan on the farm. Later that year, Beth and I were back in New York talking to Lynn Meadow at the Manhattan Theater Club about producing Beth's second play, The Miss Firecracker Contest, off-Broadway. That's when we got the news. Lynn said, Did you hear Susan was killed in a head-on collision? Somewhere down south. A drunk driver crossed the center line. Beth and I were staggered by grief. Everyone who knew her was in shock. Her life wasn't supposed to end like this. She was one of the lights we're given every once in a while to show us the way. An impromptu memorial service was thrown together in Manhattan. Words were spoken. A collection was taken for her kids. My mind reeled in the permutations of possibilities that she would still be with us and with her kids if only she had said yes to Marsha Norman and taken the job in New York. I came back to Los Angeles just as the ripple effect of her death had reached the West Coast. The day I arrived, I heard there was another memorial service for Susan being held at a little theater in Hollywood. Susan had only appeared in a few small film roles. She was a star of the stage. And like any play, with her passing, her work was gone. The only thing I had to hold on to was the small collection of people who knew her. At the memorial, I saw the familiar faces of transplanted actors from the Actors' Theater of Louisville who had worked with Susan. There were several other actors from the East Coast who heard the news and were in town. And there was someone else. A girl caught my eye. She was a stranger. She was standing alone on the periphery. She seemed out of place. She looked like so many young actresses look in Los Angeles. Thin. She was wearing a stylish brown and rust plaid shirt. She was attractive in an angular sort of way. She almost had green eyes, long auburn hair. She stood with her plastic cup of red wine looking around the open space. Equilibrium pulled me towards her. I walked up and said, hello. She lit up and returned the greeting, hello. I said, so did you know Susan from Louisville? 
She shook her head. No, no, I, I just finished a movie with her, The Dollmaker, with Jane Fonda. Susan and I had small roles in it. I got to know her there. I nodded, not sure where to go with the conversation. So, um, do you live out here now? She smiled. Yes, now. I grew up in Georgia. Oh, Georgia. That's interesting. She laughed. Not really. It's a great place to escape from. Well, I said, I come from Texas. It's kind of the same. She laughed again and said, I don't think so. The biggest thing we had going in our town was when they opened a sock outlet shop. Yeah, that's pretty bad, I said. So you're an actress? She looked around the theater. Yes, I decided to give it a shot. I always wanted to be an actor and can't really do that in Georgia. Yeah, that was Susan's battle. Be with her family, be in New York. It's hard to be in two places at once. The girl with almost green eyes nodded with recognition and a certain amount of resolution. I know, she said. You can't. You can't be in one place with your head and be in another place with your feet. No, I said. The conversation drifted into silence. I saw some of my friends from New York walk in. I couldn't believe they flew all the way out here just to come to the memorial. I excused myself and said, Well, if you're ever in a play in town, let me know. I'll come see you. My name is Stephen Tobolowsky. I shook her hand and said, I- I'm sorry, I never got your name. She said, My name is Anne. Anne Hearn. Hearn, I said. She smiled as if she were answering the question for the millionth time in her life. Yes, hern like in learn. I walked into the crowd. I stopped and called back. Nice to meet you, Anne. I'll see you later. The pre-Socratic Greeks believed that everything, including the human soul, was made up of matter. For them, matter wasn't inert. It was alive, always. It changed form. It changed behavior. The changes were not brought about by chemical reactions, but by two conflicting forces, love and strife. But the soul, the sky, the earth, the stars were bound by one common trait. They were indestructible. Science has moved far beyond this today. It would dispute the eternal nature of matter and deny the existence of the human soul. Yet there are still no explanations for things as simple as the goodness that comes from disaster or the tragedies that come from truth. That was The End and Introduction, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, you want to tell people where they can find more of your work on the internet this week? Yeah, I think I actually have a website, David, now. You have a blog. 
that you're I, I, keeping I, up with. Go to stephentobolowski.com, spell that correctly, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y, the Russian spelling, dot com. And there you'll not only see my blog, but there'll be places to click where you can either get cautionary tales, uh, get my book, The Dangerous Animals Club, uh, Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. I'm not selling T-shirts yet, David, but... <laughs> But it's also a place where you could find me on Twitter and Facebook, which is at Tobolowski on Twitter. And Facebook is, what was my Facebook? Facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowski. That is correct. You can find more of our episodes at TobolowskiFiles.com. Uh, a lot of people have been asking, where are the older episodes of the Tobolowski Files? Uh, the first 25-ish episodes of the Tobolowski Files are available uh, in audiobook form. And uh, to do that, I'd recommend you go to audiblepodcast.com slash filmcast uh, and then buy the audiobook that way if you don't have Audible already. But uh, otherwise, head over to Audible and you can download uh, the first 25 or so episodes in the form of a book called, what is it, Stephen? The Dangerous Animals Club. Performed by Stephen Tobolowsky. So check that out if you guys are jonesing for more Tobolowski. Thank you guys for listening to this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. Keep subscribed for future updates on this feed. We'll see you guys later. Adios. <laughs>